Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the IUMI podcast, where we discuss the impact of the price cap on Russian oil. Joining us today are Neil Roberts, Head of Marine and Aviation at the London Market Association, and Chris Jones, who's Director of Legal and Market Services at the International Underwriting Association, also in London. Both sit on IUMI's policy forum and have been deeply involved with the insurance industry's response to the price cap set by the EU, UK and US on Russian oil. Today we're going to discuss how effective it's been so far and how the process of attestation works. We'll also talk about anticipated next moves. But Chris, perhaps we could start with a little bit of background. How did we get here? Sure. Um, looking uh, back a few months, we we had the G7, EU and uh, Australia, I think, uh, agreed the maritime transport ban of Russian oil. Um, as we know, as part of a continued effort to curtail Russia's ability to fund the war in Ukraine. Um, however, importantly, and the reason for this podcast, um, we have there's an exemption in place as of 5th of December to permit the transportation, which would include insurance services, of Russian origin oil, where the purchase price is $60 or less a barrel. Um, as I said before, this came into effect on 5th of December, uh, for crude oil, and we expect a, uh, a further similar process to be put in place from 5th of February for uh, petroleum products. And um, there are some nuances around uh, Russian crude already on board at, at, the, at the time of uh, 5th of December. Um, and in, in those cases, even if the cargo has been sold at a price above the price cap, if the voyage completed um, and cargo offloaded by 19th of January 2023, it will still be compliant. Um, Neil, how how effective do you do you think it's been so far? Um, difficult to say. Uh, certainly, President Zelensky pointed out that the cap had been set above the price that Russian oil was trading at the week before. So that's a, a rather peculiar um, decision from his point of view. However, it's too early to say from our side because the guidance came out very late indeed, the day before the cap was implemented. So no one was really able to react. And, and as a result of that, we were able to produce attestations for the hull and cargo market, which uh, are, are required under the legislation. But we had to wait until we'd seen the guidance before we were able to move. Um, and they were done in some haste, and it's possible they will have to be amended in time. It would be surprising if we got it completely right first time, but it was the best we could do. Um, we're, we're all acting under quite a lot of pressure here and there's a lot of moving parts with you know the G7 has a number of regimes under its control and we're, we're subject to all of them so we have to try and line them up as much as possible and one of the biggest problems that Chris and I will have been handling is is the disharmonization that is is seen the fact that they don't quite line things up and it's not clear why this happens but it does happen, and um, that creates big problems when commerce relies on certainty. Neil, could you give us a little bit more detail about these these attestations? What exactly goes into an attestation from an insurer's point of view? What are they required to provide? Um, At the moment, we understand the position to be that insurers have to get evidence from the insured that they have contracted or would have bought oil below the cap during the policy and will not uh, transgress and we produce we, we get that evidence and then we keep it for four years uh, so that we can say that we were not contracting with someone who was breaching the cap 
beyond that, it's difficult for us as what they term as a tier three actor to, to know any more. Um, there are ongoing questions as to who requires one. For instance, reinsurers uh, will not know. We're suggesting to governments uh, and legislators that perhaps they can rely on the use of a sanctions clause and, and there are similar questions around political risk and credit. Uh, and separately, we're, we're producing an attestation for liability because we believe they will need one as well for online storage in between uh, or in, in advance of a transaction, but still having landed but not changed hands. Now, I think I think to add to that, Bill, and to what Neil has just said there is that, I mean, if you look at it at a slightly more macro level, we, we've already seen that the Russians have categorically said they will not sell oil to nations complying with the cap. It's also ready to cut its own production to maintain its own revenues. Um, and, and we know and understand they have a, I guess, what's called a shadow fleet um, of vessels willing to to assist in, in, in circumventing what we would see as, as sanctions in place. And, and, and we know from, and it's very recent experience, that, that oil has been sold to non-price cap uh, countries uh, at you know high sixty dollars, low seventy dollars, which seems to be um, uh, you know a, a, a kind of break-even point for the Russians, but but also a relatively easy way to circumvent uh, the sanctions and price cut regime. So it's it feels like even before we get to how an attestation process works, it we we, we have to deal with the with the core reality that that. It's not that difficult to circumvent, if it were, or at least it feels at least in the first ten days of operation. So, how how long do you think it will take till it all settles down? That we're in a position where we can see what the impact has been on this price cap. Well, I think we we have certainly from from I would say from an insurance point of view, there are those compliance and concerns around what the guidelines mean and what in the in the subtle variations between the US, EU and UK guidelines. And it's sometimes not in variations, it's just emissions, as Neil has alluded to. Um, we have I, I suppose we have a little more time ahead of the petroleum um, measures in February. But at the moment, it, 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 it feels to me as though with some of the uns- with with some of the uncertainties, the fact that you know insurers, um, many insurers already have kind of territorial exclusions on their policies in respect of Russia. Um, as Neil mentioned, the reinsurance position, the broker position, also other stakeholders who provide services to insurers, you know, the financial institutions. Um, all of those will have their own commercial appetites, um, and and it, and it it just feels at the moment as though it's a it's kind of a difficult sell, even if the Russians were, were willing to to engage in, in those sorts of transactions. So that 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 may die down as the, as the attestation process kicks in, as the as we have a bit more ability to talk to governments. Um, but it it feels like it's not going to change in the short term. I would say. So, Neil, we saw we saw some big problems with uh, vessels um, in Turkey and the Turkish authorities and the concerns they had about the status of insurance. Could you talk us through a little bit about what happened there and whether or not you anticipate um, future similar problems? Obviously, we weren't directly involved in negotiations, but the, the reporting suggests that the Turkish authorities had identified that one of the issues which remains in the guidance about the definition of emergencies and 
should, if, if an emergency occurs but the vessel has traded and breached, then the clubs had reached the conclusion that that was therefore the point at the trade was illegal therefore the adventure was illegal and they would have to be off risk and the direct market obviously follows the law in the same way and would presumably also off risk so the authorities realized they could have a number of these issues in their waters uh, obviously uh, they have a, a, it's a it's a long trade route through through their waters and they have more than their share of t- tankers so they have a higher exposure and what they were seeking was a guarantee from insurers they would provide the cover regardless which they were not in a position to give so there was a protracted series of liaisons and negotiations and it would appear that the Turkish authorities have softened their approach a little although it's not clear what vessels are moving whether it's vessels with Kazakh oil or whether it's non-Russian vessels with uh, Russian oil and um, Chris sort of Turning to the to the impact this is having on insurers and their appetite for for, for for underwriting and being involved in marine insurance under these under these difficult um, circumstances, um, how 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 are they reacting so far? Um, I think to a large degree, it's kind of trying to get their uh, trying to get a greater understanding around the attestation process, trying to understand some of the guidance. I, I, I think the the model um, endorsements that LMA have published with some of the clarifications around that, they're, they're, they provide a really useful framework for insurers to use should they wish to in the future. And as I said before, some of that may still be a commercial appetite, whether to write Russian risks at all. Um, but I think we have a framework in place. In, in, in terms of, you know, the, there are gaps in the guidance. There are uncertainties in the guidance. I think there are there are equal uncertainties for the oil traders themselves and the way that they conduct their business in terms of forwarding contracts and having a fixed price is is not really how they adapt to the to these contracts. So I think there's some uncertainties on their side. Um, I think we will as insurers we will continue to engage with government to try and get more clarity but ultimately it, it's a it's a you know a risk by risk a, a company by company decision whether they actually want to write these risks um as as, as an insurance corporation and, and and neil what's your what's your take on this well this is um, another example of the legislators and governments attempting to use commerce for political aims and uh, adjusting and intervening in world trade which is highly complex and introducing checks and balances that weren't there and essentially they amount to friction and the more friction you put in the system the more difficult it becomes to trade and fatigue sets in people will simply walk away because it's too complex there's a certain there's an element they've made moral decision as chris alluded to earlier and there's some who feel that giving any money to uh, a combatant nation like Russia is, isn't what they want to do. So their appetite is constrained from a moral perspective as well as a reinsurance perspective and a risk perspective. So um, I, w- I would say we will see further disengagement from the market. I don't know how much there is at the moment, but my sense is not a great deal. And, and what issues arise if ships are insured under 
you know, non-traditional method, shall we say. What's What happens then if there is a major disaster um, and it's underwritten by the Russian government? What, what happens then? Well, it, it definitely raises fundamental concerns around safety challenges, around the transparency of these arrangements, about payout. I mean, it's, it's getting into obviously great gray areas around payments being made. Um, you know, we, we would certainly from our side, so for example, the LMA clause is building a, um, you know, what happens where there's an emergency, um, in term, certainly in terms of third part payments to third parties. And that would be, I suppose, a key, a key issue um, if you have, say, you know, a Russian insured vessel and it crashes into something that, that perhaps, you know, that, that where there's third party damage, I think we would try and manage that situation. But, but you know, ultimately we are, it will insurers will be guided by sanctions regimes, whether they can take, receive payments. And, and it, it, it feels like a, you know, a very difficult situation to manage. We know, you know, in terms of sanctions itself, we know that, you know, OFAC, for example, and State Department have, have, have major quite a lot on, on ship-to-ship transfers, um, and, it, and it feels like we may see some some of that in terms of in terms of Russian oil, in terms of trying to evade evade sanctions. Um, so it, it just adds a, a layer of complexity for, for, from our side. But but it, but it, it ultimately will will be guided by what we can do legally, uh, and also what we have in our policy terms and conditions. And, and Neil, do you have any take on this? Well, I think, you know, the problem is insurance is binary and it depends on certainty. And modern sanctions feature deliberate uncertainty, and that's not a good mix. It'd be interesting to know how the banks are coping with their onerous reporting restrictions and also how traders are reacting to the limitations on what they can do during the voyage because uh, they make their money usually on the voyages where they trans transfer ownership multiple times. Um, and with the price cap applying during the voyage, that is that is limited. So we, we will probably see um, a change of appetite from the traders, and they will try and move away probably from those countries that are attempting to implement the cap. Um, it, it's really unknown areas. It's an unknown territory, really. This has not been tried before, um, and it's, there's no there's no clear reaction from any sector to be absolutely honest. Um, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of factual reporting either, so it seems everyone is holding their cards very close to their chest and waiting in to see. Um, as Chris said, that the Russians have assembled a shadow fleet, and it's worth saying that during the long run-up to this, which was, well, when I say long, it's felt a long time, <laughs> they had time to make arrangements with other nations as well, and we understand... Uh, up to 150 Iranian and Venezuelan tankers could be at their disposal as well. So they will be able to elude the grasp of the West, if you like, uh, and trade with India and China uh, will, will no doubt increase and, and continue because that is where they're, they're getting a lot of their money from now. And that leads just to a follow-on point that you know, Neil and I, what we're saying here is kind of alluding to the to the conclusion that the the price cap might not be as effective as as the authorities wish it to be, and then so the question then is what next? Do, do, do the authorities ramp up the political pressure? How how would they do that? Now we know that the the US has said earlier in the year that they I mean one one obvious mechanism would be to 
from the US point of view with their kind of secondary sanctions regime to apply measures to to the entities that are doing business with the with the Russians. Um, but the US has categorically said earlier in the year that they're not proposing to do that. So it will be interesting to understand, again, if we will see more political measures um, you know, at the risk of repeating this process again, having a politically focused set of measures, a secondary set of measures, so to speak, that that may be very well intentioned, but again, does not really take into account the complexities of, of not only the insurance relationship, but the wider business relationship. So it's, it will be an interesting dynamic when if we get to a point where the authorities take stock and say, okay, it hasn't worked as we wanted or it has worked or it's only partially worked. What do we do next? And what do you think the time frame for this is? When do you think the authorities will take stock? Three months, six months, 12 months? <clears throat> well, I mean, the, ne- the next pressure point seems to be 5th of February, I would have thought, with the petroleum cap. And that, that will have to, whatever that looks like, that will have to bed in. Um it kind of, I mean, we're obviously at the mercy here of pressures around the econ- just economics generally, about the energy energy crises and the various domestics, domestic jurisdictions, and also just the, the price of oil. <laughs> and you know, so it's not only about whether they look at the scheme as a whole. How often will they? How often will they look to revise the price cap? Uh, you know, per barrel maximum. So it's it. It kind of feels like it needs some time to bed in to be able to to evaluate whether it's worked or not. I mean, we've alluded to some some early signs of where we think it probably is relatively easy to circumvent the the price cap, but it, it probably feels like we're talking about internet well into next year or before. And what's your take on this, Neil? Yeah, it's definitely here for a while. Uh, as Chris says, it's, it's February the fifth before even the first application of, of the second part of this this process and it will take a while before that is is clearly working or not working so you're probably looking at april before there's an ability to assess strategically where they've got to but there's a there's a fundamental tension between what the eu wanted originally which was a complete ban and the american approach which is well that might be too harsh for those countries are not directly affected but there's also an eye on the domestic position in American uh, oil price as well which can't really be ignored and you know overall the problem with with all this is the sanctions have not diverted the Russians from their aim which is to take control of Ukraine so they you know we've, we're sort of a bit late in the in the game and although we, we talked a, a little about the ship to ship transfer and there's there's great interest in preventing that and often the authorities will point to insurers and say you you need to do more about monitoring but we can't do more than that because we're not the police we don't have enforcement powers it is really beyond our our grasp to do anything other than what we do which is to comply with the law and to facilitate world trade and and obviously to be mindful of all the sanctions that we we also comply with i i think the the attestation process. I think the attestation process does reflect, I suppose, to, to an extent that the insurers can't really police this. It's, it's, it feels to me as though it's a kind of good faith reliance on, on, on the third party, or, or, or at least perhaps to say it, it's a better end result than, than the initial drafts that we were seeing i suppose and so i think there is there is some recognition that you know as these 
what they've termed of as tier three actors are at least a step removed from the from the original transaction. So I, I, I do think there's some there's some acknowledgement of that, but but generally Neil's point about sanctions and and putting the insurance industry kind of at the front and centre of policing that is definitely valid one. We've seen it in, in other areas of sanctions, particularly about ship to ship transfers and AIS. And it, it's a it's a it's a constant challenge to to I suppose educate the authorities about the insurance process and what the sort of limitations we have in terms of in terms of monitoring. So you're you're dealing what with the EU authorities, US authorities, and UK authorities. Are they all pretty much in alignment in terms of the next stage? Do you think, or we are there three tracks of negotiations or dialogue, shall we say, with 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 these authorities happening between the insurance industry, Chris? Um, Neil might be slightly better positioned because he's involved in certainly the UK ones. But uh, I mean, my my understanding, I mean, I've seen dialogue with all three of those entities. I think that they broadly, you know, they're starting from the same broad principle of what they want to do. And and there has been some coordination, I think. But it's, it's just we, we see it in sanctions more generally when, when we have a kind of concerted effort across multiple multiple jurisdictions to impose sanctions. They are all slightly differently focused. And, um, you know, we, we've, the market has, has, has made... The, the regulators, the EU, the US, and the UK, aware of where there are divergences or where there are gaps, as we see them. Um, I don't see that really changing, to, to, to be honest. I mean, if you look at the guidance, you know, the UK one is probably what twenty pages, the US one twelve pages. Similarly, the EU even more. You kind of within that, there are always going to be nuances. And and you know, frankly, as Neil said before, different, slightly different political emphases and political sort of end game objectives. So. I think it's something that we, we as an industry can can continue to engage with, with all of these bodies on. Um, and, you know, and there's various, it's not just insurers doing it, it's the clubs as well and, and, and to an extent brokers. And, and I'm sure the financial institutions and, the, you know, the tier one actors are doing the same. It's, um, I, I, I think from our view, it's just a case of, of continually outlining where some of the very specific processes that insurers have to undertake that perhaps the authorities don't really get. Do you have anything to add, Neil? I think that's, that's basically right. That each each particular authority has its own um, goals and limitations. Um, it is slightly frustrating when industry makes a point because we know it's right, and yet the authorities carry on with the aim regardless of that. And so one exam- example would be this point about the oil going through customs which it doesn't. Almost no no country has a customs regime on oil, and it doesn't flow over somebody's desk and get a stamp. Um, so that, that produced some difficulty. It, it, it remains, obviously, the EU's guidance is, is, if we look back to all the packages they've done, it's you know, 150, 200 pages. If it's simple, you wouldn't need that amount of guidance, so that just shows you how complicated it can be. And the guidance, for example, which supports the UN initiatives has been very, very difficult to line up. But it still isn't fully lined up in some areas. And the EU is seeking, for instance, to make their, their guidance legally binding, which, as Chris will tell you, is frankly not, not a starter and that can't be done. 
And there's, there's a lack of understanding from our side as to why, if they can produce an instrument of sanction on anyone, why could they not produce an instrument of license in the same way? And they said it wasn't done that way. But, OK, fine, but, you know, you're asking us to do the impossible. How about helping us? Um, so that's a, a bit of an issue. Uh, yes, we do have have dealings with all three and, and the UN on top, and that um, it takes quite a lot of time, to be honest. <laughs> but it's very worthwhile, and we're very welcoming of, of that engagement from the authorities. Uh, and it's joining up all the dots and, and hopefully coming out with a, a, an answer that we can live with commercially. But ultimately, it, it's, it's not in our in our control. We have to. We can only advise, and we then we have to deal with the outcome. And as we're one part in the transaction, uh, we'll have maybe forty moving parts as well as us and the banks and the charterers and the brokers and the shipbrokers and the owners. There's lots of other people involved at Shoreside and to second have these secondary sanctions is extraordinarily complex and it's very difficult for insurers to know uh, you know how much is enough because there's no guidance on how much due diligence is, is good enough. You just have to show you've done it. So these, these um, suggestions that you can keep going down the supply chain there's no good answer to how far can you go. Gentlemen, thank you for your time today for what was a very interesting discussion. You can keep up to date with the latest on sanctions by visiting uh, the IUMI website, iumi.com. Um, do listen out for our next podcast, which will feature an interview with uh, Frederick Deneffler, who's IUMI's president. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.